0: Precisely the fact we find it challenging means there's a kind of opportunity. Because we're feeling the friction, we know we have to do something, whereas in other times we might have been complacent.
1: Our energy network is going through a massive transformation. But how do we decide where to spend our resources to give us the best bang for our buck in 20 or 30 years time? I'm Phil Bourne and this is What's Next, a podcast from Energy Consumers Australia that explores new connections for a people-powered energy transition. In this episode, Energy Consumers Australia's Director, Policy, Energy Services and Markets Jacqueline Crawshaw speaks with Matt Finch, an Associate Fellow from the SAE Business School, at Oxford University and Strategy Consultant at MechanicalDolphin.com. Matt was in Australia recently to participate in our annual foresighting forum. And Jacqueline sat down with him to discuss some of the challenges with designing an energy network for the future when you don't entirely know what the future could look like.
2: We're in a period of transition. Our energy market is in a bit of flux. There's a lot of challenge that's going on. We've got a lot of uptake of consumer-owned technology. People are putting in solar panels, buying EVs. There's interest in batteries. It's putting a lot of stress on our energy market right now. So I guess my question to you is how do we deal with this uncertainty? How do we avoid putting a Band-Aid on the problem today and think about it with a long-term vision in mind?
0: Well, I think... You hit precisely on this notion of transition, of this enormous change. And we had a speaker today, I think it was Jill Kenney, who compared it even just to decimalization of the currency in 1966, which in some ways is much less consequential than the energy transition, but was this kind of revision of the way that society talks and thinks about something that we use in everyday life. The challenge is that we're not fully certain what we're transitioning towards. And that comes both in those external factors that we really have no control of what's the climate going to be like in the future? How is geopolitics going to play out? But even there are uncertainties about quite how we're going to configure and deploy the energy system, how we're going to structure the energy market in times to come. So one of the things we've talked about during the forum, and I guess it's the reason it's the foresighting forum, is can we create plausible visions of the future that challenge some of our assumptions and help us see more clearly what's going on in our immediate environment. So during the forum, we had this activity where we created an island, which looked at all the different entities involved in the energy system. And then around the island was a whole sea of different uncertainties, including social, ethical, environmental, technical, political, legal values, and thinking, how could that sea come ashore in times to come? I think when you can't get certainty because you don't know what the future holds and because the environment's become so unstable, you can manufacture something which aids you with your decision-making by just forcing yourself to say, what future are my plans and schemes going to inhabit? And what if I don't get the future I want? What if I don't even get the future I hope or fear? What lies beyond my expectations? Because I think so often the shock of uncertainty is when something arrives simply that we didn't expect
2: you're from the UK in Australia we've got a number of market bodies that have got different roles across the market is that something they need to be particularly mindful of how do they how do they do their job on a daily basis when they've got um, a, a regulatory environment or a political policy environment that they need to operate in but having a mind to the future and where consumers are already driving it to.
0: Well, I think this is precisely one of the enormous challenges of governance today is to think about how to make governance anticipatory. And that includes both things like experimentation and sandboxes and deliberately proactively trying things in little ways gather data or evidence that we can then use to make decisions but it's also about acknowledging that even though regulators in some ways control an environment and shape it they too are subject to contextual forces so actually thinking what future are these regulations going to have to live in and trying to take that benefit of hindsight how is the next generation going to perceive the choices that we're making today which can sound a little bit far-fetched but actually if you think looking back 20 or 30 years i'm sure in the australian energy sector you can see things where you think oh i wish things have been done differently in the 90s or the 2000s had we only known and the fact is you can take it and it's almost that notion of being a good ancestor is saying that everything we do is going to have consequences and someone else is going to have to clean up after us in that sense so even when we're making rules and regulations there's a danger that we regulate purely based on the data and evidence that we have here and now which by definition can only ever come from the past. You can't gather data or evidence from events which haven't happened yet. As soon as you gather data and evidence, it starts to get out of date. So one of the aspects of anticipatory governance that are really interesting is thinking about the world in which things will have to be governed. And particularly, it's very hard for us to predict technological changes and get them right. But what really matters are the social dynamics. So it's not so much, you know, what is the processing capacity of a smartphone that matters. It's will there be a device that lets people communicate in a certain way? You know, what's interesting about the smartphone is not so much its technical capacity, it's the part it's come to play in our everyday life. But the last thing I want to say to this is in the 90s, there was quite an interesting scenario project about the future of paper. And one of the things that came up was that there was a lot of work done on bleaching paper products to create white paper. And they saw that it would be a game changer if they could genetically modify crops so that they didn't need to bleach them. And then you wouldn't need these chemical plants, you wouldn't need to use all these nasty chemicals, it would totally change the paper industry. So when they were doing scenarios for the future of paper industry, one of the scenarios involved GM crops. And therefore they had to think, what else would GM crops mean for our society? And and I think it's that nature of zooming out and thinking about implications and consequences that really matters.
2: There's a tension here, I think, between dealing with that uncertainty and and living with that uncertainty rather, but also the fact that we probably need a plan. We need a plan because without it, we don't know where we're going to go. We don't know where we're going to end up. And we would like to at least have an idea of where we're heading, something that is inclusive and something that's going to uh, really put consumers in the centre. So How do we address that tension?
0: Well, I think it's really interesting. You see it in the energy objectives for Australia, this notion of the long term. And therefore, you have to acknowledge that when you look to the long term, there are different possible future consumers whose interests we might be needing to serve. So part of it is creating almost like a wind tunnel that we're designing this aircraft and we're gonna put it into the wind tunnel and subject it to different conditions. So we can say, even if the long-term plays out this way, that way, or the other way, what we've designed is resilient in face of all of those conditions. That's one aspect of it. The other one is to have some degree of optionality. It's super difficult, of course, when it comes to rules and regulations, but one of the things that's said about strategy a lot these days, which is really just policy, but also encompassing you know the private sector and, and other kinds of decisions, making is, do you need a plan or do you need a playbook like in American football, where the teams go, well, depending what else is happening on the pitch, you're going to go left. You're going to go right. You're going to go long. We're going to throw the ball over here. We have a menu of options. And I think one of the things that might be interesting around the future of regulation is how do we design regulations for the here and now, which can adapt and unfold as the circumstances change. So you might actually build in some optionality saying, if it turns out we're going down this route and it is a heavily automated future, there's a whole bunch of options of things that we might need to regulate and this is how we might do it. We might even do some experiments already and say, let's do a sandbox test of how would we regulate this kind of situation. But it's the fact that things are going to play out, that there are so many more actors in the energy market. Now we were hearing about vehicles and we were hearing about software and questions even of cybersecurity. You know, when did cybersecurity become an energy issue? It's relatively recent in the history of the industry and the market. So I think part of the challenge for regulation is to be truly anticipatory and say, actually, what are we going to be regulating? For some of us, it will be within our own professional lifetimes. What am I setting myself up to deal with a decade from now? And for others, it might be for our successor generations. But just as we have inherited both a situation and a context and a package of regulations from the past, it's about thinking about developing something that's a bit more flexible, that can cope with the fact that we're not in the steady state that we might have perceived ourselves to be in, or some of us perceived ourselves to be in during the 20th century. And it's really clear when it comes to energy and information and communications particularly, the landscape has changed so much. And there's a really nice comment from Richard Norman, who I spoke about in the forum. Um, He talked about the density and liquidity of information operations. And the density was like, how many things can you do in a single device? Like how hard can a single device think? And the liquidity was how far and fast can information flow and there's something there about regulating environments where information is flowing further and faster than ever before and it's being processed within you know it's processed in a thing you can hold in your hand right now or that you wear on your wrist where is that going to end up
2: i think for me the generations that we're seeing now the younger people are not necessarily the ones that are being consulted and they're not involved in the processes because they're not necessarily even the bill payers they're not the, the account holders in the household they possibly don't even have an interest in the energy accounts right now but we're designing a future energy system for them that doesn't listen to their views it hasn't heard their views it doesn't account for them in any way so i think there's a there's a challenge there for decision makers in the energy system it's just how do we build that 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 system that's you know 20 30 years down the track to account for consumers that aren't even consumers in the traditional sense that we think about them now. And I think there's a lot of values that the younger generations are going to hold that we may not anticipate even now, that you know they might be starting to show through in terms of how they're adopting green credentials or how they're um, using devices or other societal values that um, are driving them. But I just think that they're going to want to see a system that sees and shares their values And I just think that there's a challenge in making sure they heard now to deliver on that in the future.
0: No, I think there's something really powerful there. And there's there's two things I take away from what you're saying as well. The first is that question of the long-term that just because we see scenarios set in 2030 or 2050 or 2070, in some ways, scenarios are never really about the long-term we set them in a future year in order to think about how the uncertainties of the present will play out. And I think we really strongly felt this during COVID where things that we thought were way over the horizon happened in the here and now. I was involved in a project in Australia in 2019. And in one of the scenarios, by 2050, because of the climate crisis, machinery of government changes and other domestic political changes meant you needed an internal passport to move between states in Australia. And everyone's like, this is a very far-fetched 30 year scenario. And of course it happened during the pandemic. So one of the things to remember when doing the futures work is we might put a distant year on it in order to make things credible, but really we might be talking about something that's six months around the corner. And the other thing, which I think is so important as we record this, we're on the campus of UTS, University of Technology, Sydney, it's literally O week. So there is a million, billion, 18, 19 year olds queuing around, you can't get into the UTS shop today because everyone's buying themselves their hoodie and their beanie or you know their, their board shorts or their umbrella or whatever it is. And one of the things I think is it is not so much, what do I think in 2023, the right future should be for them in 2050. Because what do I know about 2050 really? It's so easy and it's necessary, of course, to say, well, we have a positive vision and this is what we dream the next 30 years are gonna be like. But one of the reasons I'm so interested in scenarios that challenge our assumptions and why really I'm not a futurist, I'm a strategist. I'm about helping people solve problems here and now. I'm not so worried about whether 30 years from now, Those kids are happy that they're living in my dream that I came up with in 2023. I want to solve not even just their problems, but their children's problems. If we can see those problems arise now, we could solve or mitigate some of the issues that the following generations are gonna have. So if we can see what is problematic about a particular configuration of the energy market or the energy grid from the perspective of the here and now, we solve it now and then we don't face that generational issue at all.
1: You're listening to What's Next for Energy Consumers Australia. We've just been hearing from Matt Finch speaking to Jacqueline Crawshaw about uncertainty in the energy sector and about how we are looking to the future to make predictions about what will happen in the energy sector in Australia and around the world. And a reality that we face today that we may not have predicted in the past is the huge uptake of solar panels and batteries and other energy tech now Alexandra Bishop from the Grants Program, can you just share with us what work is the Australian National University doing in this area and why is the project going to be important?
3: Thanks, Phil. This is a really exciting project because it brings customers to the centre of the discussion around how these consumer energy resources, when you say solar, batteries, these resources and how they should be managed in conjunction with the networks in the future. And it's, it's really important because consumers are the ultimate users of the energy system and their acceptance and trust in the system is critical for the success of the network and the system.
1: Yeah, and, and we've had so many new resources be kind of bought and purchased by consumers and put in their homes. And you know that is causing some issues when it comes to the stability of the electricity network. Um, you know, what are some of the main challenges associated with managing these resources with the grid today?
3: Yeah, as you say, we've seen a rapid, huge uptake of CER or consumer energy resources such as rooftops, solar, and batteries, and our network and our grid just wasn't actually designed to incorporate this energy from household rooftops and small business rooftops. The grid just wasn't designed to incorporate all of this energy. And so that's created quite a tension between consumers and the networks, because what we might see are limits being placed by networks on the amount of excess solar. So that's the solar you're not using to power your home the limits that might be placed on the amount of solar you can actually sell back into the grid when the network and the grid is at capacity. So networks, they want grid stability while consumers want a return on your investment. So you've invested a significant amount on this asset on top of your roof, and we might be in a situation where there are limits imposed on the amount of return you can get on your investment.
1: Yeah, and you can see how that would create some tension. And, you know, what does this grants project specifically do to address some of these challenges that you've mentioned?
3: The project ultimately seeks to help understand how the system should manage capacity for the future demand, but actually from a consumer perspective with some industry input.
1: So in terms of what this looks like, is it going to be research conducted, compiled into, into reports? Um, you know, h- how are the current ways in which this is being managed, being kind of looked at and analysed and and what, what, what sort of outputs do you expect to see as a result of this project?
3: So at the moment, there are quite technical solutions that are being considered, such as dynamic operating envelopes and virtual power plants. Some of these solutions might not impact consumers uh, beneficially. And so what ANU is trying to do is to understand what the impact actually might be on consumers. So there are many technical solutions out there, but the problem is is that the consumer perspective isn't necessarily the focus of these solutions. So ANU is actually trying to understand the consumer perspective and how some of these technical solutions might best be applied. So what we want to see in the future is a network that's built in ways that reflect the values of the people who are connected to it.
1: It sounds like we're trying to reach a happy medium between consumers' needs and the network's needs, so it sounds like a really exciting project. Uh, Alexandra, where can people go to find out more information as this work progresses?
3: Well, uh, our grants archive on the Energy Consumers Australia's website is a great uh, source of information. So all of our grants are on that, and this project is featured on our on our webpage and our grants archive. So that's that's a a great resource for people who want to learn more about our program.
1: Alexandra, thanks for joining us for the grants update. We're going to jump back into the conversation with Matt Finch and Jacqueline Crawshaw uh, about uncertainty and planning the future energy system.
2: We've heard recently about the breadth and diversity amongst the consumer types. There's different cohorts. They're all using energy in different ways at different times and with different capabilities. How do we, how do we have a plan for everyone? How do we make sure that we're, we're accounting for different people? We're building a system that really has people at their heart. That's very much what um, Energy Consumers Australia is all about, where we want a system where it is built for the people. But there's a lot of them. How do do we do that?
0: Well, I think you already have a great deal of expertise in terms of surveying and segmenting. You know, one of the things the energy market, the energy industry and energy advocates are all very good at is looking and saying, so who are the consumers? Can we put them into types and taxonomies? Are we talking to all of them? Are we giving all of them a voice where it's consequential and it plays a part in decision making? When it comes to that question of the transition and the future that we're transitioning into, I think it's about doing the same for different scenarios, different potential futures we might have to inhabit, but acknowledging that might mean an identity change. One of the things that's been troubling me is there's a great Oxford academic, Trudy Lang, who says, you know, we often think we inherit identity from the past. Who we are is because of who we were. And then what we do in the future is strategy. Like we don't change who we are, we just make a decision about what we are going to do and there's that difference. But the truth is our identity is always changing and evolving. So we can already see with the the formation of words like prosumer, is it even something that we need to be talking about in times to come? Are they going to be consumers? Will it be that Energy Citizens Australia or another body will have a slightly different role in times to come? So I think the great work that we already do, saying who is out there, can we divide them into meaningful groups and then how do we engage with them? The question becomes tomorrow not only who are those groups what is that what are their parts in the system you know how do they feel about the system in each different future but say do we even meaningfully talk about consumers anymore that you know Jill Kenney gave this great metaphor of the apple industry you know in a world of industrial orchards if someone starts growing apples in their own back garden how perverse does the system have to be if they start charging you to take the apples away from your own back garden well in that world is it even about consumption anymore is it about the role of the consumer or is that a different identity? I don't even want to say citizen because it could be resident, it could be visitor, it could be anyone who is on these lands because citizenship is caught up in its own story. But there's something there about the individual member of society or the family or the community group and their part, not just as recipients of a particular commercialized capitalist form of energy production, but also as producers, also as people who have values other than monetary values or questions of profit and loss. And I think there's something there about identity in times to come, which really needs some attention.
2: We use, I mean, you know, it's, as you say, it's in our title, we use the word consumer. What we really mean is people. It's 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 not limited to consumers and consumers uh, in the broad sense, you know, everybody's using energy. They're not just the account holders. It's not just the bill payers. It's everybody in that household, everybody in that business who's just a person. So that's, you know, it, I think one of the challenges right now is is keeping that in mind because it's very easy to get caught up in who owns the tech and who's paying the bill and, you know, who's who's on the concession card. And they're all very important but they're a subset of everyone
0: absolutely and i think it's as much a question of sort of power and hierarchy you know of course there are always hierarchies in communities and organizations even if it's just literally the org at eca that's necessarily people have different roles and responsibilities but if you put that hierarchy away it's just a bunch of people and i think the hierarchical nature of systems and particularly the energy system one of the challenges is to recognize that this is also just a collection of human beings. And some of them are in organizations that might be responsible for producing the energy or transmitting the energy or receiving the energy. But at the end of the day, there is one society here and it is making some choices about energy production, consumption, and supply. So I think there's there's something about that humanizing aspect that's that's really core. Cool. And I wondered for you, this, this forum has had so much to offer. There's been so much inspiration. There's been interesting debates. Where are you curious, Jackie, to dig deeper? At the end of these two days, where are you thinking, well, that's something that's gonna keep me awake and I'm, I'm gonna wanna do some more research on. Where are you most curious now?
2: There's a couple of things I think I took away from this event. One, I think is just the passion that everybody has come with. Everybody here has come because they can see a challenge and we need to work collectively to deliver it. And I think that's probably, in fact, that's probably the main thing I've taken out of this event. I think there's there's this sense that no one of us in terms of different organizations and different types of decision makers in the system has the answer. We have, to, we have to work together to get to that solution. Um, and I think that people come here looking to make those connections in the side, you know, in the networking and, and on the side of the event, but also to, to hear a common message and to have a common conversation.
0: There's something about common language, just to round off on that as well. The idea that we will all speak the exact same language, I'm particularly mindful of this as a POM in Australia, deciphering various bits of Aussie slang over the years. Um, We might never speak the exact same language, but can we make ourselves understood? Can we find that common ground where all these diverse, passionate players and the wider energy industry that might not all entirely be part of this conversation yet, Can we just find that common ground when it comes to talking about a fair future, a just future, a sustainable future? And I really like the speaker from Schneider Electric, which is also a corporation that has done scenarios work and thinks in a very foresightful way, but saying we might not get perfect, but we can get to good enough. And I think that actually that's been the best thing about the conversation at the forum for me is, is finding that common ground, even where there are little differences of terminology and opinion.
2: Well, I think that's a really nice, positive way to end. Like that that commonality and that sense of togetherness is is really, I think, a lovely message for us to take forward. This is where I think the system's got to go. And I think it's where the, the parties and the, and the people in the energy system have to take it. It's it's we need to pull together to, to develop that better future for everyone that works for all. So I might draw a line under that, Matt, and just say, thanks very much for your time. We'll end on that nice, positive note. And we look forward to chatting with you again soon.
0: Thanks so much. Thanks to you and all your team for being such brilliant hosts.
1: What's Next is brought to you by Energy Consumers Australia, the national voice for energy consumers. Thanks to Matt Finch from the Saeed Business School for joining us for this episode. The interview was conducted by Energy Consumers Australia's Director of Policy, Energy Services and Markets, Jacqueline Crawshaw. And the production and editing was by the team at Lawson Media. If you're interested in contacting the show, please send us an email at podcast at au. I'll also put some interesting resources in the episode show notes. I'm Phil Bourne, and I'll speak to you next time.